Welcome to the Daily Creed, where we help you break your limited beliefs that are holding you back from being a personal and professional success when you master the five character traits of commitment, resilience, excellence, execution, and discipline. You will have the power to dominate your industry and live the life you desire. And now, helping you to grow in every aspect of your life, your host, J.R. Spear. Spear. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Daily Creep Podcast. And today I have Sarah Glancy, who is the founder of Speak Masterfully, and she helps professionals present with ease and high engagement in front of an audience, large and small, so that they can get the promotion, become known as the thought leaders in their field, become more effective team leaders, and make more sales. With a background in both theater and entrepreneurship, Sarah has a unique perspective on what it takes to be an effective speaker in the professional sphere. Drawing on her acting training from NYU Tisch School of the Arts, as well as her years of experience building her own business, she has developed a methodology that is equal parts art and science, all with the goal of empowering her clients to step into the spotlight with less fear and more fun. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for blessing our audience with your presence. I'm excited about having you here and looking forward to hearing more of your story. You know, just with every episode that I, that I start with and when we do the interview, I always like to know how someone got to where they're at. So if you can, let's start there. Kind of tell us a little bit about who you are and what led you to be where you're at today. I love that you start with story. This will become abundantly clear throughout the podcast. Story is my love language. So starting off with a story, you had me at hello. There you go. So you've got this in my bio. I am a theater kid at heart. Uh, my training and where I got my storytelling fundamentals, my vocal technique, the technique stuff I work on with my clients is from my background in acting at NYU. But I think the real story is, in terms of my ethos, comes from my teaching career, which is right after college. My first job when I was thrown out into New York City was teaching Shakespeare performance at a very fancy private school on the Lower East Side to a bunch of third graders. And when I would tell people this, their eyes would go wide and they'd go, you're doing Macbeth with third graders? That must be so hard. And I would, of course, go, yeah, you know, it's pretty hard because I was 21 and I wanted people to be impressed by me. But the truth is, it wasn't. Third grade is the perfect time to learn Shakespeare. These kids soaked it up like sponges. And I got really curious as to why this was, because I knew plenty of folks who were completely traumatized by Shakespeare in high school, either traumatized or bored. So what did these third graders have that these adults I knew didn't? And what became abundantly clear to me was that these kids had a sense of play. The reason they were able to take in this language and and perform in front of a room of people is they weren't looking at Shakespeare as the greatest literature of the Western world. They saw this as an opportunity to run around in kilts, dressed as witches, and whack their friends with foam swords. And I think that is what's missing from most adult forms of professional development, is the sense of play. We simply learn better when we have a sense of play. And I think that you can be really serious and goal-oriented without losing that sense of playfulness. And in fact, I think you're going to get to your goals faster if you still have that childlike sense of I want to learn how to do this thing and I'm not going to second guess at every turn. So that's really what kind of built my ethos as a public speaking coach. Now I don't work with third graders, but I apply a lot of those techniques to when I'm working with computer programmers, software engineers, lawyers, and entrepreneurs, 
the skills are really the same of, I want to step confidently into a room, whether that's a courtroom, a boardroom or a zoom room. And I want my message to shine with confidence. That's amazing. It makes me think of my, my childhood. And, and as you're telling that story, I was like in putting myself in the third grader shoes. Cause when I was a young age, I, uh, I grew up in the martial arts, so I've been doing martial arts since I was three years old, but I started teaching around, you know, between 10 and 12 years old. And I would be, the, I would be like this young kid going into a room full of adults and I'm like taking over the whole class. And then I gained the respect, which kind of leads me today where a lot of people ask me is like, Hey, JR, you know, he has like, knows no stranger. You can walk in a room and I just have the confidence to be able to do it. And it just started from like a young age. So I think you're dead on when you're like teaching these third graders on the playfulness and just everything that you probably taught them and led them through it really plays a huge part of what they can do going forward in their future and really shapes them as a human being. And, and for me, martial arts and that leadership from starting at such a young age really developed me as who I am. So that, that definitely, uh, that definitely when you're telling that story, it, it was taking me back. It's like, Oh man, I wonder, you know, I was just thinking about the things that I went through as a child and how it shaped me today. So. I think that's absolutely true. Whether you are in the drama club or you are on the track team, those are formative experiences. And I think it's kids have a willingness to, if they fall down when they're playing, they don't get embarrassed and cover their faces and go, Oh no, I fell down in front of people. I'm so embarrassed. They get up and they keep playing because that's what it is to be in third grade. And I think that's the skill that as adults, we need to cultivate a little bit more is when you fall down, instead of making a big deal and asking and being embarrassed and going through, Oh, I should have done this. I should have done this. Get up and keep playing. And yeah. I think that's such a fundamental part of being a kid that we tend to forget as we get older. Yeah, I love that. So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing today and what you're doing to make an impact to, to help the entrepreneurial world. Great. So I work with both individuals and then I also go teach corporate workshops on storytelling and presentation skills. Increasingly, that's over Zoom. And one of the biggest problems that I find uh, my clients are facing today, whether it's in the corporate setting or the entrepreneurs, is how to cut through Zoom fatigue and actually hold an audience's attention. Because I always say it doesn't matter how great your idea is, if you can't communicate it in a way that's actually going to connect with your audience, it's not worth anything. Your idea is only as powerful as your ability to communicate it. What is Zoom fatigue? Just like getting tired of being on Zoom and just not being able to present on it? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, if you haven't experienced Zoom fatigue, it's just that feeling of, oh no, another Zoom meeting. And we already have short attention spans. And when we are virtual, they are even shorter. So like being able to hold an audience's attention and not have them forget that they're talking to a real person. Because I think sometimes when we're in a meeting, we forget there's a live person. JR is literally across from me right now. He's not a pre-recorded YouTube video. He's right there. But our brains kind of tune that out because it's just another screen and it's more screen time in our day. Yeah. So it's how a real do, problem. Yeah. No, I, I was making a joke because I was like, you know, I get that all the time. Like, oh, man, I'm on another Zoom meeting. So like today I, I actually had the opportunity to meet with a couple of people in, in person that are local to me for some meetings. I was like, oh, man, that was a fresh breath there. And it was like a 45 minute driveway. I'm like, yeah, I'll come. I'll come see you. <laughs> like I would do another Zoom if I can help it. So I totally get it. But when they like, how do you help break that? I mean, because. Right now in today's society, I mean, we're networking on Zoom. We're doing meetings on Zoom. The sales calls are on Zoom. It seems like the whole life of how we transition, do business, or even family gatherings. I mean, gosh, I went to a baby shower and it was on Zoom. I've, I've actually participated in a wedding that was on Zoom. And it was it's just crazy on how much we're utilizing 
the online platform for it. And yes, that fatigue thing is, is absolutely real. And uh, for me, I, I love the in-person. So every time I get an opportunity to do it and get in person, I, I take advantage of it. Um, but when we don't have that chance to be able to go in person, you talk about having the Zoom fatigue. How do we get out of that? Like, how does someone that's networking or doing it all day to stay fully present? Like, do you have any tricks or things that they can take to be able to do it that will really help them? 100%. So there's a one, there's a couple of physical adjustments you can make. If you are able to look into the camera, at least when you say your name and you introduce yourself to the group, that goes a long way. We are completely starved for eye contact and mm. the mirror neurons. We want to look at people's eyes. And right now I'm looking at JR on my screen and I need that feedback. But I also, if I want JR to feel like I'm looking at him, I need to look into the camera. Yeah. So you don't want to be glued to the camera the whole time because you want to engage with your audience. But at least when you introduce yourself at the beginning of the meeting, hi, my name is Sarah Glancy. Look at your camera. And I always advocate this because this is the one part where you do not need your notes. I hope. You yeah. hopefully will remember your name. So this is a great place to make eye contact with the camera. It makes it feel more human and personal. Mm. The next big thing is I believe you need to engage your audience probably every five minutes during a presentation and change it up how you engage. I'm a big believer in, I like to do show of hands, who's experienced this? And I raise my hand physically, not the raise hand button, but physically, because we are so starved for physical stimulus during these meetings. If you can get people to move, it's just anything that breaks us out of the normal patterns of Zoom where we're at our seats and we forget that we, we are interacting with other humans. Yeah. So prompts like I love show of hands with a physical show of hands, something where you can get people to physically activate. I also will have, I'll use the chat feature liberally in any presentation I'm doing. And the key with this, you want it to be something that people can, can type really quickly. I often like to start workshops with, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how comfortable do you feel speaking in public? They can do that with two keystrokes and it starts to make it feel like it is a two-way conversation. Even if I'm doing 90% of the speaking, I want the audience to feel like we are in a normal human conversation yeah. as much as we can. So I say, if you have a presentation, break it up with audience interaction every five minutes. Give me physical prompts, put things in the chat, find ways to just break us out of the pattern because it is too monotonous. Yeah. Have you, do you, uh, experience, do you utilize the break rooms or anything like that? I just started doing it and I absolutely love it. Yes. I, I, and I tell this to all my presenters, people don't want to hear you talk. The things we remember when we go to a workshop are how we participated. So yeah. the less I'm talking in a given workshop, the better it is for participants. It's better if I can give them prompts, put them in breakout rooms, have them come back. What did you learn? What did your partner say in that room? That was brilliant. Brag about your partner. That's where the real learning happens. And people remember those experiences much more than any brilliant nugget that you might say. No, that's really good. So I, I am not a slides person at all. I hate using slides. I hate using those type of visuals and stuff like that. I'm, I'm, I love public speaking and talking, like when I'm in person, like when I was speaking at an event uh, this past week and I would kind of what you say, I, I prompt people to be able to like, oh yeah, how many people do this? I give them raise their hand. And I, a little trick that I've learned as well is you get, you, you try to network with people beforehand. So you can kind of learn a little mm -hmm. bit about them and learn their name. So when I'm speaking, I'm actually calling them out by person. 
Like I'm saying, hey, hey, Sarah, you know, when you were telling me about this, this is how it can relate to whatever this situation right here. And what immediately gets her eyes to just point at me, like look at me and it makes them wake up. They like sit up a little bit taller. It's like, oh, he just called my name. He just remembered my name. And, and it just kind of did that. And that was a little trick that I did. But one thing when you're talking about engagement for virtual, and this is where I struggle because since I don't like visuals that much and using them just because I feel like they're distracting, but I'm told that when you're doing a virtual event or a virtual workshop or presentation, that you should be using uh, visuals because and switch them. Like you're, you say every five minutes, or whatever to switch and engage. Like I heard the same thing about using visuals every five minutes or so to keep people's eyes moving and knowing what you're doing. And what's your thought mm-hmm. on that? What a great question. I usually, when I start a workshop and this is funny, cause I'm, I, I told you right before we hopped on this interview, I just did a 90 minute storytelling workshop at a company. Yeah. And the first 10 minutes I had no slides. It was talking to the room, learning about them, just like you were talking about, and then telling a story. Then I moved into the slides. Then I'll move out of the slides and do a breakout room. It's really about just giving us variety because that's what our brains are craving. And when I say slides, I never put more than two sentences on a slide. People can't read and listen to you at the same time. My slides are usually an image or one word. Yeah. And so, but I, I've seen people who are perfectly compelling and don't use slides at all. It's really about, can you still keep the variety both visually and in what we're doing? You know, if, if you're going into breakout rooms every five minutes and then you're having people physically activate, stand up, sit down, talk, unmute, I don't think you need slides. I also don't think there's a one size fits all. Everybody who does public speaking does it in a slightly different way. And I don't think you should try to sound like Tony Robbins, nor should I. It's what is your style of public speaking and what is the best version of that? So is there a difference between putting together your talk for like a podcast interview or leading a workshop or like a keynote? I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the main yeah. differences between the three that you would say? Hmm. Well, I would say for a presentation and a keynote, it's going to be a prepared deck. I have an outline. I'm not a big believer in memorization. I don't think that's a good usage of our time, but I'll have a solid outline of what points I want to hit. And the one, the common denominator between all of those things is before I walk into a speaking event, I ask myself, what do I want my audience to do or feel as a result of this talk? Mm-hmm. That I will do before all three of the things. The difference is that for the keynote or the presentation, I have a solid outline and these are the points that I want to hit. And for a podcast, it's really more improv. If we think of these prepared presentations, that's your your acting exercise, your monologue for 90 minutes. A podcast is really about, can I breathe and listen and be present? So you're not giving your pre-selected answers to a, a list of questions. You're actually engaging with the human across from you. That's that's awesome. That's definitely really powerful. And and uh, I always wonder like what are people's take on doing that? And of course, a workshop. I I mean, for me, when I think of a workshop, I think of it's more interaction with not just the speaker, but interaction with the people, like a mastermind, and talking and really solving problems and back and forth. Whereas a keynote, it's like an outline of what your key bullet points. Okay, you want to know how to speak? Here's the best things that you need to do in practice. And like like you say, podcasting. I see podcasting as being very like relaxed coffee style engagement, getting your audience to listen to they're in a car, they're running or walking or whatever they're doing to really gain some value from it. So that's a, that's really cool. And really powerful on that. If someone was going to be wanting to jump in and 
to be like, you know what? I want to do some public speaking. I want to be on more podcasting. I want to do more workshops. Where should they start? Hmm. Well, it's not a one size fits all model. So I would say the first step, and whenever I work with folks, the first step is to assess where you're coming from as a public speaker, determining what is your biggest stumbling block right now. Because for some folks, it's very clear and it's performance anxiety. I have a great idea. I have something I'm really excited to share, but the camera turns on and my heart rate is racing and my palms are sweating and I can't put two words together. That is a very clear stumbling block. And that is the first thing that needs to be addressed if you want to put yourself out there in a bigger way. Other folks I work with, I'm an extrovert. I can talk all day. The problem is I can talk all day and I can't get to my point. And so for them, the it's more about storytelling mechanics how can we get more precise language around what you're doing? And so it really, it varies person to person. But for me, the first step of the process is always a strategy call where we actually look at what is your biggest stumbling block? Because it varies wildly between people. And I'm a big believer in what is the 20% of effort that's going to yield 80% of results. So we tackle the biggest thing first, and then you can continue optimizing from there. Yeah, I am totally that second person where it's like, I, I've, that's why I say I like the doing workshops. Like I, I love doing keynotes and being able to speak and stuff like that. But for me, it's like getting down to putting, getting to that point. Cause I just love to go into so much detail about what it is. I'm like, ah, oh, I got to break it down. So when you were describing that and just like looking at you, I'm doing, I'm like, no, that's totally me. So you like describing <laughs> But again, awareness is the first step. So if you know that's you, then you can write down on your post-it, okay, what do I want people to do or feel? And then when you feel yourself maybe starting to go off the rails, you can use that as your North Star of, is this tangent getting me closer to that goal? Or is it time to steer back to the path that's going to get me closer to that objective? Yeah, that's really good. Now, if someone's like the the more introvert and they get anxiety about wanting to prepare for the, the, the call and stuff, what do you do? Like for me personally, one thing I've always tried to tell people is like confidence comes with clarity. So the more clear you are in your message and, the, and what you're going to say and what you're going to do, the more confident you're going to be able to present or, you know, do whatever it is that you're wanting to do. If you got that type of person, like where do you start at? Because I'm, I come across that a lot with other people. For me, it's just foreign because I just put me in front of a crowd and ask me what you want me to talk about. And I'll just, I'll just start yeah. talking. I have no, no shame, but for a lot of people, even my clients, like me, tell them to even just step out and be like, hey, I need you to get out there and start networking and, and just meeting people. That immediately terrifies them. And they just put on a wall and be mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I just didn't know what to do. And I just can't get them off that ledge sometimes. And I and what you're saying could be the piece that I'm missing personally on being able to help them. Because to me, I just, I never really experienced having that fear. But And when, mm-hmm. since I didn't experience it, I have a hard time on relating and understanding it. To me, it's like, no brainer. All right, go go up here. Present what you do. If this is what you do, then tell people what you do. Like go out there and do it proudly and, and have people do it. So from you, I'm, I'm sure you come across people, but I come across people more often than I would think that are terrified to jump on a podcast, to stand in front of a crowd, to even just tell people what they do. They, they love and they're great at what they do, but they just, they just don't take the action to it because a lack of uh, more fear. I hear that. And the funny thing, which always surprises people when I tell them this is I am an introvert. I am an introvert with performance anxiety. So I, I come to those people with a lot of empathy because I physically experience all of those things. And the first step is just knowing that if you are an introvert or if you have performance anxiety, if you get a little bit of the racing heart, know that that is totally fine. And there are plenty of really powerful public speakers who experience that. 
That's just our lizard brains trying to protect us because back in the day when we were cavemen and cave women, you know, if you stand in front of the tribe and you say something they don't like, what happens? You get kicked oh. out. Oh yeah. What happens if you get kicked out? Probably bad. You die. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You, you're going to get eaten by a wild animal. So back in the day, public speaking was very dangerous. Hmm. Now we're working with outdated uh, software right now that a lot of us are afraid of public speaking because our brains still think on some level that it could be a lethal event. Now, in reality, if on this podcast, I say something that JR doesn't like, he might go, and then I'll go, oh no, I embarrassed myself in front of JR. But truly, <laughs> The stakes are low. I will still have a home with running water and electricity. My lizard brain doesn't know this. So my advice to folks who get really nervous when they're about to walk into a networking event or behind the camera, one, I say, hey, me too. And the second thing is know that this is just old hardwiring and your brain is trying to protect you. So it's flooding you with uh, those, those hormones that make you the adrenaline that make you really nervous. It's trying to protect you. But that said, you want to address the physical before you even go to the mental of, you know, what is, what is your goal? What is this? What is this? First steps first. If you know that when you get nervous, your heart rate increases, take two minutes to do some breathing exercises. I do something called asymmetrical breathing before any speaking engagement I do, whether it's five minutes or 90 minutes, which is just inhaling for a count of six, exhaling for a count of eight lengthening your exhale for longer than your inhale just slows your heart rate down. I'm a fast talker and I get even faster when I'm nervous. So I know that it's not a big deal if I'm feeling nervous. It just means I need to take two minutes to calm my heart rate down and tend to any physical sem- symptoms of performance anxiety, which again are different for different people. If you know you get tongue tied, take two minutes to stretch out your jaw. <laughs> it doesn't have to be hard. And you, yeah. we don't have to like tie ourselves in knots about why am I nervous? Why I've done so many scarier things. I've worked with so many folks and it really breaks my heart. They say, look, I've been a first responder. I've given birth to a child. I've done so many scarier things in my life. Why does this make me nervous? Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. If you feel nervous, it's just because it's old, hard, hard wiring. And all you got to do is just attend to the physical symptoms first. See if you can get your heart rate down, get yourself in a calm, grounded place, put your feet on the floor, roll your shoulders back, get out of startle posture, which is when our shoulders go up and we cross our arms because it, again, we think there's a threat present and we think something's going to attack our neck or our soft internal organs. So you want to reverse engineer confidence by just putting your shoulders down, taking a nice neutral pose and telling your brain that there is no threat present. Start with the physical and then do the mental work. Yeah, you, you talk about like speaking fast. Like my if any if I ever get feedback from anyone on any time I speak, they're like, Jerry, you need to slow down. Because I but it's not out of nerves, it's not out of uh, you know, or anything like that. For me, it's when I'm passionate. So when I'm mm. passionate about something and I'm excited about something, I tend to talk really fast and people can't really keep up with what I'm trying to say. So and I so I I practice skills with myself where it's like, all right, Jared, stop, take a breath. And then continue. And I, I had to do that, like every, like break up my thoughts where I do something like that. And then I stop yeah. and I had to go on. And for me, it feels like death. It was like, why am I stopping to talk? But then when I go back and listen, I'm like, oh, it actually sounds normal that way. But in the moment, it feels like it's eternity of me when I take those breaks and I'm breathing and I'm like trying to break up my thoughts. So that's something I've really had to 
that I struggle. I still struggle with this sometimes. I had to tell myself, I hear that. Pause, engage your audience, take a breath, and then go on. Because if not, I'll just go boom, 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 boom. And I just like energize a battery and I can talk for hours. Like Tony Robbins, he can go like six, seven hours straight. I'm like that, where I will just go on and on and teach all day until someone tells me to stop. So I, I hear that. And I actually, I applaud you because I like that instead of trying to slow down, what you're doing is putting breaks in because I often meet folks and I'm from New York city and I talk fast already. It's okay to talk fast. Hmm. The important thing is, can you take pauses and allow there to be breaths when you need people to digest the information? Yeah. And usually this ha- happens when you're like making a really important point or when you turn I always say to folks, if they write out their speeches, which again, I'm not a big fan of memorization, um, but if you do write it out, look for any time you have in your text, but although, however, I like to think of these as yield signs in your text, because it means you're about to shift in a different direction. And if we're going around a sharp turn on a, a windy road, you want to slow down as you're going around the turn. So you don't go flying off the hillside. Yeah. But in general, the pace of speech is your pace of speech. I don't think you need to slow down, but I love that you're thinking of it more manually as, all right, let me take a pause and a breath so that my audience has time to digest because they do need that. Yeah. They're always like, JR, I can't keep up with the notes of what you're saying. You go too fast. And I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> so it's a challenge. Um, so there, the, a couple of questions I wanted to ask is at, for an entrepreneur itself. Um, and to me, I, I, I kind of know the answer, but I want to hear your perspective on it. But how important is public, like having the skill set of public speaking as an entrepreneur? I think it's vital. And especially for early stage entrepreneurs, let's say you don't have a $10,000 marketing budget to put into Google ads. Being on someone else's platform and speaking about your business, it is such a great way to grow your list, grow awareness, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So especially for early stage entrepreneurs, I'd say the best thing you can do is go out on a stage and speak about your business. Mm -hmm. I know last year, I think 70% of the people who hired me, it's because they went out and they heard me speak somewhere. And I think that this is a tool that entrepreneurs can be using all over the place. And when we tell stories, particularly, because not all public speaking is created equal, you have to go out and actually connect with the audience. But if you are using stories, When we hear a story that is really compelling, our brain releases oxytocin, which Mm. is one of those feel-good drugs. And what it actually does is it promotes trust and bonding. Mm. And probably any entrepreneur listening has heard that old adage, we buy from brands that we know, like, and trust. So if you want to build trust with an audience or a client or a potential referral partner, the fastest way to do that is to tell them a story. So if you can get in front of us on a stage in front of your target audience, and tell them a story that's going to connect and get that no like trust factor that can just be a huge opportunity for your business and you don't have to pay a cent in google ads yeah yeah that's so true like for me and my story and if anyone listens to any of my podcast episodes I, I don't mention every single one of them but for me like my story is like my experience from the military and the martial arts and getting blown up by a suicide bomber in iraq I didn't start sharing my story of like my experiences of Iraq and getting blown up for over 10 years, uh, maybe a little bit longer because that happened February 7th of 07. And that, and the reason why is honestly just not feeling worthy because I have people that was in the blast with me and they're either dead or they 
lost limbs and just have much worse off injuries than what I did. And I just never felt like telling it or telling the story. And I was probably one of the closest people to the black, the, the guy that killed himself than anyone else. But yet I'm still able to stand here fully functioning with all my limbs and able to live somewhat of a normal life. So it was, it was really hard to do it. But when I started sharing stories, opportunities started coming my way. And then it was even more therapeutic for me to be able to do it. It's just like being able to, instead of like bottling it up and, and having it inside and almost living this lie of why I'm in pain and what all these different battles and demons that you face on a regular basis, it started being a lot more freeing. And I'm able to share it without being emotional all the time. Because before I couldn't even speak it without wanting to cry just because of how, how, uh, how hard it was to, to actually live out that experience. But the, the stories for me personally, the more I share it, the more it helps me uh, do it as well. But I've also seen other opportunities to be able to speak and serve my clients better and things like that, because it probably adds that connection and that trust a little bit more. So I think you're dead on with that. Can I ask, what was the turning point for you of when you started to feel more comfortable sharing your story and sharing your story in a business context? Because I know that's something, especially for folks who have a story that's maybe a little bit more vulnerable, that's a really scary first step to share your story and to let it be at the forefront of what you're doing in your business. Yeah, it was actually a friend of mine. Um, we were in a mastermind group together as well. And we we had like a little men's Bible study that we put on. And I kind of shared a little bit about it, just overview. And then they wanted me to share the whole story once. And he told me, he was like, you need to start sharing this. And I was so reluctant to it. And I was like, why would I share it? What impact is that going to do from my audience? Because I was serving business people. Like, how does this impact that? But I've learned how to take those experiences of my story and being in the military and getting blown up. And even the process that led to what I call an ambush to help mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur, because the same things that we went through as, or that we go through on a day-to-day basis as an entrepreneur, we need to first identify the different threats, which is the planning. It's the understanding of your enemies, the things that are going to bring you down. So that way you are prepared when you do get ambushed. Because when I look back at that, amb- when we got blown up and, and at that ambush itself, it took a long time of reflection, but the, the way that we responded was everything. It was the way that we responded when the blast happened, all the corpsmen attained to all the people that got injured, the, the comm people who reached out to medevac to the helicopters to be able to come in to get the people out of there is the way the other Marines went out and patrolled the city to look for any other potential threats and the way that we actually controlled the entire area of all the other people around. I and mean, there's just so many moving parts, but none of that has been, was able to be possible for us to be able to do what we did. If first we didn't identify the potential threats, knowing what could come and then prepare that training that we had to do to lead up to it. Because when we go through the training, it's almost like you got to go through hell to be able to have success. You got to go through hell to be able to get through your app because you can't, the way I see it is like, you won't know how to be able to help other people to get through trauma or tough, tough times if you haven't gone through it yourself. Like how can a coach teach another per, another person to do something, but they never really built a business themselves? For you, you have a lot of experience in speaking. You know what it's like when it's to be nervous to get up and speak. So you can relate to those different people. So for me, I can relate to those people of like what it led to that point. And it took a lot of time, really even going back to the day I put my foot, my two feet on the yellow footprints at boot camp to really understand is like, hey, from there, it sucked. It was hell. I was like, I didn't want to be there. But everything that we did was to condition me for that moment. And mm-hmm. same thing in our business. Everything that we do now from foundational pieces putting together our messages, putting together your offers and start helping people lead you to bigger opportunities or to be prepared for the ambushes or the threats that will come like a client quitting, 
an employee quitting or objections that may come or uh, COVID, you know, pandemic, having to switch your whole way, way of doing business. So that's the way I did it. But the, the big turning point for me to be able to start talking was this, uh, this individual, his name is Mark Havens. And he encouraged me, he pushed me. He's like, Why don't you, you need to start talking about it and you need to do it. And I just never really saw it from the outside of how it was beneficial to my mm-hmm. audience. And then when I started doing it, I was connecting the dots myself. And it was like, oh man, everything I learned over the years has really developed me for where I'm at today. Even for speaking, everything that yeah. I've gone through from the mil- whole military, it's like people don't think, I mean, yes, the military's one main goal is to, is to prepare you for war. But everything that they do to prepare you for war is for one specific objective to stay alive and you know protect other people. And But the steps and the processes and the things that it takes that we go through is like everyone has to work together as a team. There's so many moving parts with it. You can't rely on one person to do it. But we all go through different training that leads you for specific times, specific moments. So you learn to respond without thinking. And that's building that muscle mm-hmm. memory. So it was, it was actually encouragement of other people that, that was like that heard pieces that saying, Jerry, you need to start talking about it. And when I did, that's what really opened up my opportunities with a lot of different things that led me to be doing this podcast, honestly, uh, to be able to do that, that. Around that same time. Um, when, and when I think I there's, that. if I can be techniquey for a moment here, there's a, sure. a really great lesson in that story that you just told, which is something that I work on with my clients is sometimes we have a story and it's important to us, but we're not sure how it relates to our fields. Mm-hmm. Right. Or I'll, I'll often be working with an entrepreneur and they're like, well, I have this story, but I don't know. It's a little personal. Is it too much? The answer is no. It's always the perfect amount. But from a technique standpoint, what you've been able to do, which I think is really powerful, is you want to zoom in and get really specific in a story because in the specific is contained the universal. When you tell a story that is really, really personal, that actually is what makes people able to relate to you. In the same way as when you hear a song on the radio that's really specific and it feels like it was written for you, that's what great art does is it's a very specific song, specific to the creator, but it feels universal to a bunch of people. Hmm. But what you've done is you've taken a really personal story and you were able to zoom in and get specific and have people emotionally resonate with it. And then what you've done beautifully is zoom back out and build the frame, which when we build the frame around a story, we tell the audience, why is this important? Why does it matter? How does it relate to you? So it's then connecting those dots of, I have this story about this very personal thing that's also universal about the human experience. How can I then build a frame around it that connects to my field and my point of view about my industry, which is entrepreneurship? Mm. And it's not always easy to do. And it probably took a lot of exploration to figure out, okay, what parts of this story do I use and how do I use it? But then when you start to connect those dots, it really, it's a magical experience, both as the storyteller and as the person listening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I even try sometimes, depending on the audience that I'm speaking to, going down to the detail, like what I was seeing, what I was smelling, what I was feeling that day. And, and even from the start of when I woke up and, and went to it and uh, I, it, it's just a completely different experience, but yeah, I mean, the more detail and personal that I get with it, the more I can see the audience leaning in on me and really yeah. kind of like listening and engaging. And then once, when I start seeing those, those shoulders, like leaning in the eyes, leaning in, they're like locked on me. Then I know that I got them and they're paying attention to every word that I say. And it makes a makes a big difference to the the result of what the outcome of what I'm trying to gain for the rest of the, the event. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the hardest things about Zoom yeah. is often people have their cameras turned off and you don't have that moment of, wait, are they leaning forward? Are they listening? 
for losing some of that feedback, which is so useful as a speaker when you are in a live room with people mm-hmm. telling a story. Yeah. I love seeing the pins go and people just kind of taking notes and that's what really gets me going. Um, I mean, you, you, you said before we jumped on here that you had some questions that you want to do me. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of like school me a little bit. <laughs> oh, not school you at all. This is actually <laughs> going to be me fangirling. So, so watch out. So I listened to a couple of episodes in prep for today. And it's funny. One of the things that I work on with many of my clients who are entrepreneurs is podcast technique because people get very nervous in podcasts. And I have to say many podcast moderators don't do a good job setting them up for success. And as I was listening to the interview, I was like, oh, JR is setting up his uh, interviewees for success, which I really appreciated because a lot of podcasters and listeners will probably recognize this. This thing happens where they go, okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to tell me about your story. And then like, what are the top three things that you can do as a public speaker? And then also how can you apply this in a work setting? Go. And it'll be four questions. And by the time the person starts answering, they've they've forgotten the first half of the question and they're really lost and at sea. Yeah. And I noticed as I was listening, I was like, JR asks one question at a time and it's related to what the person's saying. And there's a really lovely flow to how you interview people. So I wanted to ask how you learned interview technique because it doesn't come naturally to many people. Uh, honestly, it goes back to my martial arts days and I've learned Mm -hmm. how to control the room and I learned how to control conversations. So I know how to bring people in and like, okay, if I want to end that conversation where, where it's at, I know how to get them out of there and, and take them to where I want to go, which honestly is a really good sales technique that that people need to learn from, from that standpoint. So when you can kind of control what people say and what they're doing and lead them on your path and be like, Hey, you know what? I'm the one I'm the moderator. I'm controlling this conversation and I want to lead it. The other thing too is. I hate it when people want to ask me four or five questions at a time because then it doesn't feel like a conversation. And to me, I like to mm-hmm. make the interviews on podcasts as a conversation because like you said, people get nervous, but not just that. I can't remember everything that I want to say and I want to make sure I'm hitting every single point. So asking yeah. those key basic questions. So I try to, like like I told you, getting on here, three main questions. I want to know the story is why I ask, okay, what led you to where you're at? What are you doing now currently? And what can our audience take away that can help them? So that way we can kind of do it. Now, in between, there's going to be other questions. So I hate going into a conversation or a podcast interview with something already hundred percent planned because I don't know what you're going to say. And I don't want to ask you what you're going to say beforehand, which I've had people that I that interview me that wants me to, they want to interview me before the interview to kind of go over what I'm going to say. And to me, it just doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel real. And when you get on there and do it, I want I want the listeners to be the ones that are listening to make sure make them feel like they're part of the conversation rather than just being mm-hmm. talked to in a way. And because I like I that, was there a learning curve for that at all, or or do you feel like you had just this instinctively down from the first episode, or were there was there a learning curve where you're listening back to the first three and you're like, oh, okay, I got to adjust here and here. Being interviewed on a lot of other people's podcasts showed me what I didn't like, and <laughs> uh, and it showed me what sure. I did like. And yeah. so when I when I would get on there and I, I tried to evaluate how it's making me feel by the way they they let mm-hmm. it. And whether it was a good way or a bad way, and like there's a lot of takeaways from it. I was like, I would never want to do it that way because this is why it makes me feel. Um, but I think even from the beginning, you know, I I think I develop myself better the more I do it, and everything comes like practice. You know, you you want to build that muscle memory, almost like what I was telling you about my experience from 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 war. It's like you got to build that muscle memory of what you're doing, so you learn to respond without thinking. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you speak your story, the easier it gets. 
a friend of mine used to work for uh, Tony Robbins. It was part of his sales team. He would go to like a lot, all of his events. And he would say he can tell exactly what time of the presentation of Tony speaking, what word he's going to say at that moment. Because Tony mm-hmm. was so good at he not just memorizing, but he knew his message. He knew what he was teaching and what he was doing. And he did it in a very strategic order. And to me, that really clicked because I'm like, man, when you know your message so well and you're able to do it and what you're doing, it, be, it comes across as confident. It comes across in a way of being authoritative in the way you speak. And that's why I always tell everyone, confidence comes with clarity. The more clear you are on your message and what you say and what you do, the more confidence you're going to have when it comes to presenting and even the outcome of what, whatever you're, the objective that you want to overcome. So, from, so I think even for me, it was just more of practice. But just kind of knowing, like I just committed. Now I've been when I before I started my podcast, I had the idea of wanting to do a podcast for probably two or three years beforehand. But I always had a fear of like no one's going to listen to me, and it was just so mm-hmm. I just never did it. And when when my my buddy was telling me about like sharing my story more and encouraged me to do it, and I was like, well, I guess I can do a podcast. No one's going to listen to it, and so I just kind of did it. And I, and I've been pretty consistent with it for I guess we've been live a little more than two years now, and maybe two and a half or longer. And uh, with over a hundred episodes and interviews and stuff like that, and just more, more you do it, the easier it gets and you just have fun with it. Cause if you're not having fun, then why do it? Oh, amen to that. Yeah. I, I, I often say to people, I used to avoid professional development at all costs because professional development to me sounded like sitting in a conference room under fluorescent lights and working through a a workbook that I didn't want to open. And that's really part of the whole ethos. And it goes back to the, my experience teaching Shakespeare with kids is we learn better when we're having fun. It doesn't have to be a slog. And so I think applying that philosophy to the things that are really important to you, because I think we sometimes segment like, this is the time where we're having fun. And this is the time where we're being serious business people. Yeah. And you can be a serious business person while being playful, while listening, while having spontaneity. And I think that's what's missing from so, so many different fields where professional development with a capital P and a capital D yeah. are really prioritized. Yeah, I, I, I can totally relate to that. And sometimes, you know, I will say when I first started the podcast, the first several, like six months, I was not having fun with it. And I was trying to figure mm-hmm. out why was I not having fun with it? Well, I started evaluating the different things, all the components that goes into podcasting. Well, first off, you got to find the people to interview or you do it yourself and you come up with the episodes, but then it's the editing aspect. And for me, I didn't like the editing. So I was like, okay, how can I remove the editing piece? So I don't have to do that. So I found, I actually have someone every episode I get, I send it to him and he does all the editing. He does the uploads. He does all that stuff. And I don't have to think about it. And when I did that, it was so freeing. And then I can show up and be me. And then I don't have to worry about the technical stuff that I don't enjoy doing. So when I started outsourcing the things that I did enjoy doing, I could focus on the things that I love doing. And that's what really made mm-hmm. an impact for me. I'm such a believer in outsourcing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Life's too short to be editing your own podcast episodes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, and, and it doesn't have to be that long to do it, but gosh, there was, even if it takes like 20 minutes to, for one episode, it's like, oh, I need to change this or that. I just hated it. It's just the time. I mean, that's the thing. It's not even just the time. It's the, the energy that it takes. I felt the same way when I moved to an automated scheduling app, the amount of hours out of my day where I was just coordinating with clients to to schedule their coaching. I was like, it's just not so that you can devote your, both your time and your energy to the places where you're actually making an impact. Because the thing that I love is teaching. 
yeah. coaching, being in the room with people working on their skills. That's the thing that I love. So why get bogged down in email admin work? <laughs> yeah, I can relate 100%. That's awesome. Uh, well, do you have anything else that you would like to share with the audience? Uh, something that, they, that you want them to remember you by and uh, take away from everything that you just said? Yeah, well, I mentioned this a little earlier, but in terms of my creed, and this I hope will empower you to step up to the microphone, is it does not matter how brilliant your product or service is if you can't talk about it in a language that resonates with your audience. Your idea is only as powerful as your ability to communicate it. I think sometimes we think, oh, public speaking, that's a soft skill. You know, I'll work on this, this, and this, and then one day I'll work on my public speaking. It is not a soft skill. It is an essential skill if you have an idea that you want buy-in around, whether that's from a client, whether that's from a consumer. If you want buy-in around your idea, you need to be able to speak about it in a compelling way. And you can't be afraid to step up to the microphone. I agree 100%. And it's a skill set that everyone needs to learn, which is brings me to my next uh, question and point. Everyone needs to have a good skill set of knowing how to speak. And everyone needs to have a coach that can show them on how to develop new skills. Even me, I need someone like you that can critique what I do because I know I, I can always improve and get better. But for someone to be able to get in touch with you and be able to learn those skill sets, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, thank you for that question. Speakmasterfully.com is my website. You can find me there. You can connect with me across social media at speakmasterfully. And then I'll say my favorite place to send people in terms of a tool that you can use immediately right now is I have a free gift called Mesmerize, Don't Memorize, because I know I've alluded to this a few times. Memorization is not a good return on our time. So it is a workbook, not a boring professional development workbook, but a very useful workbook for how to outline for speaking engagements, whether you're speaking for five minutes or 90 minutes. And it also talks about those hooks we were talking about earlier to engage an audience over Zoom. So you have some examples of how to hook them every five minutes. So if you would like that free workbook, you can download that by going to speakmasterfully.com slash mesmerize. And you just trade me your e email for that. And then uh, you can get more tips and tricks from me around public speaking. But I think those are all the places on the internet where people can find me. Very cool. And I will post those links underneath uh, this episode. So either they're going to watch this on Apple iTunes or they're going to watch it on Spotify. And then if we share this on uh, or when we share this on social media and our emails, then they'll, they'll be able to get, uh, have all those links available and be able to see it. So if they, they're listening to this, they can't find it. They should be able to see it underneath there as well. So we'll have that. But uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me and uh, sharing your expertise and what you do and the, your loves and passions. I really enjoy the conversation. So thank you so much. And for giving our audience that free gift. I mean, I'm definitely going to jump in on it and check it out and see what you have to offer. So, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join us and be able to bless us with your presence and sharing what you have. So until next time, audience, thank you so much and Semper Fi. Thank you for listening to the Daily Creed Podcast Show with J.R. Spear. If you want to get more leads and grow your business, head over to fitprofunnels.com to get your free gift today. That's fitprofunnels.com. And to connect with JR online, check him out on Facebook at jr.spear.3. Or feel free to join the Facebook group at FitProFunnels. And you can also find him on Instagram at jr.spear.